Season 2, Episode 4 of the overview of our Formed by Scripture series. Welcome, everybody. We have been talking about how to be formed by Scripture. Is First of all, we need to understand authority, and then story, and then eat it. And now the final week is obey it. We find this idea about the importance of obeying the Scriptures all throughout, but specifically the text we talked about on Sunday were both Matthew 7, which Jesus gives the illustration of the two foundations. And then you also have James 1, where James compares and contrasts the person who looks at the mirror and does nothing about it, or the person who hears the word and does it. He's a person who is blessed in all that he does. So that's the idea. Pastor Caleb, can you give us an overview of the message? Yeah, so at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends with a warning. Our obedience to his word is what makes us true disciples. And while most of us would agree with this idea, few of us actually live it out. We're either too afraid of becoming legalists, too obsessed with information alone, or too unwilling to humble ourselves and live out what we read. In each of these cases, we fall short of the blessing of becoming formed into a person of love. But the cross frees us from falling short. So by accepting this gift of grace from God, we have freedom from earning God's love. And by embracing this freedom, we're able to truly live out God's commands and experience his transforming power of his word. Awesome. So we've been talking about, I think me and you, Caleb, for a while now, like the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) On the Mm -hmm. Mount. And uh, this whole idea that there actually is a lot of doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And me and you kind of were raised in a context or maybe like in our college years Mm -hmm. where there was maybe a little more of an emphasis that you shouldn't really do anything, right? That Jesus did it. And, you know, yes and amen to that, you know, at the cross, it was done. It is finished. Uh, But there's like that hard paradox there. Mm -hmm. Um, as, As Dallas Willard points out in Divine Conspiracy, 15 of the 92 verses are devoted to doing something Mm -hmm. like pray in a closet, give in secret, drop your gift at the altar and go and reconcile. And so the math is that that's one sixth of his Sermon on the Mount is actually very much action oriented. Mm -hmm. And so how would you describe the way we balance that, right? That obedience isn't what earns our salvation, but very much the Christian life is filled with a call to obey. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I grew up in a context where first uh, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount as something to do. And so uh, in my youth group, you know, in middle school, uh, growing up in Texas, it was like you look at the Beatitudes as like virtues. And so you have to be meek and you should be humble and you should be kind and all that stuff because then you get some kind of reward or whatever. And then kind of a hard pivot towards a more reformed culture through high school and college, which was more like, no, this is Jesus saying like, this is the standard. You can't measure up to it. And because of that, I'm here to save you. And like in heaven, we'll measure up. And heaven, right. right. Like yeah, the yeah. New kingdom will be that way, but not right now. Which never really made sense to me because because the way he ends it is like, so go and do this. And the one who doesn't do it is like a horrible person, you know, all this stuff. So then how do you balance that? And then I'm thinking, well, the people that he's preaching to in that moment, like if the point was for them to see Jesus as the one who really fulfills that and for them not to do any of it, then he leaves like he doesn't give them the answer. He's like, all right, now go and do it. And then he moves on. So like, they're just left without hope. And so there has to be some element of like, like you said, there, there's a practical element to the sermon on the mound and that the expectation of Jesus is that we actually do this. 
But in a lot of ways, just like what everything else we've talked about with formation, it comes down to what your end goal is. And so if salvation is just about escaping hell, then uh, it doesn't make any sense to obey. But if salvation is really about healing and being made into a new person and um, communing with God, being intimate in a relationship with God, then obedience won't feel like obedience. It'll feel like you're in a relationship. And so, you know, you think about it with like a spouse or something like that. Like there's an inherent discipline in every romantic relationship where two people care and love about each other or love and care about each other. Uh, There's just things that you do that you want to sustain that relationship because the end goal isn't just to make it to your deathbed still married. The end goal is like to have a deeper relational intimacy with that person. That's the goal of your marriage. So sometimes you do things that you don't want to do. Restoration, there's forgiveness, there's turning the other cheek. I mean, everything in the Sermon on the Mount almost applies to a marriage too. But in a marriage, you don't think about it as obedience. You just think about it as like being a mature person who wants to love and serve your spouse. Yeah, um, I think that minim- the the marriage uh, analogy is really helpful, mm-hmm. right? Because there is that intimacy that's so involved in relationship with Christ. Uh, so yeah, it's like, I, I would be glad to hear more ways that I can love and serve my wife Mm -hmm. and I will do them. Uh, and not as a way to manipulate her, but simply to love her, uh, and shout out to us, me and Jordan's 10 year anniversaries tomorrow. Oh, nice. So, you know, no big deal. Uh, but yeah, so there is a joy in that. So yeah, I think it's a really helpful paradigm there. Uh, you know, John Ortberg and in his book, Eternity is Now in Session, Mm -hmm. which we hand out to everybody when they receive a baptism box is he talks about how we've kind of shared. Do you remember the phrase? It's like the gospel of the minimum requirements or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so we've made it, we've so watered down the gospel into, are you in or are you out? Mm -hmm. Right. How do you get in? What's the minimum? And really the Sermon on the Mount is, Hey, this is the vastness. This is the beauty of life in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is that concept of kingdom is always already, but not yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So, there is a sense where, yeah, we're not going to fully walk out the Sermon on the Mount, but we our aim is to, uh, and the aim as we seek to do it has to always be filled with grace, mm-hmm. right? With with Jesus empowering us to fulfill it. But I think a lot of times too in that obedience thing, Jesus says a lot in the Sermon on the Mount is you really obey it uh, based on your motivation, as you had just mm-hmm. said, right? Motivation's huge. So like uh, praying, right? So a person who has truly been, who has encountered Jesus, been forgiven by him, ha- is, you know, now intimate with with God, mm-hmm. looks at prayer as an opportunity to curate and, and to sustain that relationship and really sees God as beautiful. Mm-hmm. But a religious person, a Pharisee, uses prayer too on the outside, um, but... They're only doing it to look good to everybody else around, right? So mm-hmm. Jesus's crescendo there is assuming everyone's going to pray. He's saying you pray at times in, in secret in your closet because the point of prayer is not to perform, is to have that intimate relationship with the Father. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of us in today's context, we take it so far and we say, well, therefore we don't ever pray in public. You know, like don't do these things. Like if you're not going to give with the right heart, then don't give. You know, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we just, we almost make, I don't want to look like a Pharisee. Pharisees do these things, so therefore I'm not going to do these things. And it's like, no, you've taken it a step too far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I don't think, a couple things. One, 
I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me that we worry so much about like obeying to the point of perfection. So it's like, well, I can never, you know, fully live up to the expert. But you, again, you wouldn't apply that to a marriage. So it's like, man, I can never plan the perfect date night. So I'm just not going to do it. Like that, it's not the point. Like you, that's just not. And, and I think that has to do with our like moralistic sort of like informational view of reading scripture, not like the transformative way of reading scripture. So we always look at like how we can live this out in a way that's perfect and you know all that stuff. And there's all sorts of, that's a very Western thing, I think too, about productivity and performance. Um, and like, can I add a, yeah. like transaction versus tra- transformation? Yeah, right? exactly. Like, yeah. This is a transaction on my part to your part. And when you look at it that way, it has to be perfect. There has to be the perfect amount. Mm-hmm. You're saying it's a, it's a series of transformative practices. You're slowly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the other thing too, is you, um, the thing that gets tough about motivations is like, there's a myriad of motivations at play in everybody at all times. So it's not like, it's not like your motivations will always be pure and it's not like your motivations will always be like impure. There's going to be a mixture like, and and that's sort of the point of doing these things is like over time, uh, these practices, you, if you were going to use reformed language, like you are already justified. Um, you can't earn your right standing with God, but sanctification, which is the process of you becoming more and more like God, um, that's something you, I think scripture is very clear. You participate in it. And so if you see the sermon on the mound or obeying the word, you know, whatever language you want to use, uh, as a means to that end to, you're not earning anything. You're giving the spirit space to work in you. Then your motivation becomes more and more pure over time. And I think that in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is getting to the point of having the right motivation. So at first, like tithing, for example, you might tithe with one, I don't know, like one hand behind your back or whatever. Like you might tithe with a closed fist um, because you're just, you're not sure you're not, you don't fully trust God yet, but that's a great first step to take. That's better than like both hands behind your back holding right. at all. So over time, I think what happens is your motivations begin to change. Your motivations right? begin to change because of your obedience. You can't wait for the motivation to obey. That's really good. It has to happen the other way around. Otherwise, we your wait motivation until our motivations change. are perfect. Exactly. And then we'll act and they'll never get that way. Right. I think it was, um, Oh man, who's that really old, old, old Plato or Socrates? One of those. Who's that old guy? Who's that old guy? No, uh, he says like, change your mind, change your actions, which then changes your mind, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like it's constantly going back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one thing we've been really talking about a lot at Passion Creek is, yeah, do it even when you don't feel like doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, really press in because you actually find your affections will eventually follow. It's sort of like the question of, um, I, I remember I got asked this a while back. Someone was like, if you go to worship in church and you're not feeling it, like you're angry, you're not, it's wrong for you to actually worship because your heart's not in the right place. And I was like, well, if that's the case, like you're, and I used to, I used to say that too. I remember I had this argument with somebody in, when I was in high school and I was like, yeah, your motivation should always be pure. If you're bringing an impure offering to God, you know, then it, he's not going to want it. So like get yourself right and then go, you know, which is a misapplication of whatever scripture I was trying to reference. But then if you wait for that motivation, like you're never going to worship, you're just going to give in because what you're doing is you're feeding what Paul would call the flesh, that part of you that's not yet conformed uh, to the image of God. And so it's exactly in doing the thing that you don't want to do or doing the thing that you don't feel like doing, worshiping when you don't feel like it or giving when you don't feel like it, that your motivations are then aligned. And yeah, you just can't wait for yourself to, to you can't wait for your feelings to catch up to your hands. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, like that's a really immature way to view relationships. I know in marriage, I think a lot like the beginning years of my marriage, 
I we had issues because of that. Like I was waiting till I felt mm-hmm. like I wanted to do X, Y, and Z for her. Yeah. And I have learned the joy of just doing it. Mm. Yeah. Man, the marriage analogy really helps a lot. Yeah. I wish we brought that up sooner. <laughs> it's so, I mean, it's over, not overused, but it's used a lot that I think it kind of loses its potency. But when you dig into it, like it makes, and again, it's all like, you know, is, is, is salvation transactional or is it relational? And, and we're, accustomed to it being so transactional that you don't think about the implications of it being an actual relationship with God. Yeah. So even, even a relationship with God, you can make transactional where it's like, if I obey, then God's going to give me this, then I'll be a better person or whatever. When really it's about just obedience for the sake of obedience. And then through that you're transformed and grown and sanctified and all that. So everything in the Bible before the cross is pointing to the cross mm. and then everything after is really in a profound way pointing back to it. Mm-hmm. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is no exception, right? Like this uh, is all possible because the cross is coming, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. so that's why one major point we had is the cross is the source and his commands are the course, mm. right? So we don't follow his commands to earn salvation. That's not it. That's backwards, right? We receive the cross his death and resurrection, his payment, a substitution for our sins. That's what gives us life. And now that we have that life, that life in abundance really comes when we really receive his invitations. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're just invitations, right? Other times there are certain things in the text where it's commands, mm-hmm. right? But a pastor that you and I follow a lot, he's like, there's a lot of this, like, let's say fasting or whatever. It's very much an invitation. Like, hey, I'm just inviting you into deeper maturity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe it's not immoral to, to not do it. Uh, but it, it's a, it's an immature thing to not do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Again, back to the marriage analogy. I think John Ortberg points this out in his book when he's like, you wouldn't ask your spouse on the altar. Like, what's the least that I have to do to stay married to you? Like that's so even that. Right. Like that. I don't even think that's the right attitude to have with it of like invitation. Commit. Like it's all invitational in the sense that like, can you fast? Can you not fast and be good? Can you not read the Bible and still go to heaven? That quite like that doesn't make sense to me. Like that doesn't. That's such a, that I don't think that, I don't know. I just don't see that as like a, a helpful framework. And that's um, a good example because we're talking about being formed by scripture. We have to constantly analyze what framework am I working from, yeah, yeah. right? Like what glasses am I using to see the text? Mm-hmm. And a lot of us, you know, that word deconstruction is really popular right now, but there is a worthy endeavor to deconstruct the way a lot of us learn how to read scripture, to mm-hmm. interact with the church, right? Because it was, it's not what God intended. Yeah, um, I want you to bring up the next topic, but I have one more thing. Right. So think about where to take this conversation. next, right. Friends, we really do plan these conversations. <laughs> They're better when we don't plan them. Yeah. Um, but one other uh, in honor of the great and late legend, Tim Keller, mm-hmm. uh, one way that he talks about these passages a lot. Um, I, I found his commentary on the bad tree versus the good tree really helpful. And it informed the way I talked about the uh, shaky house versus the 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 rock you know mm-hmm. the the foundational house is that uh, an easy simple fast reading you would assume a bad tree doesn't produce fruit at all but no a bad tree still produces fruit it just produces bad fruit and so a lot of times you can't tell somebody's motivation you can't really tell if someone has really regenerated which is not our job most of the time right we're not mm-hmm. oh you're going to have you're not but uh you can't tell often because both of them look like fruit yeah so you can't tell till you get really close mm-hmm. and really examine. 
And I thought that was a really helpful way to look at that text. Uh, and so it is possible to engage in all these things. To en- it's possible to engage in the practice of Sabbath and Scripture and be far from God, right? Mm-hmm. So it's our job to constantly remind, hey, the, the heart of this is that, that marriage type of, like, this is love, this is intimacy. But one way that he said to tell, if you're somebody who truly is engaging in these practices because they have love for the Father, right? They have been loved, uh, is religious people. He uses that term. I don't love, I would say like Pharisees uh, always see God as useful, but never see God as beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy to use the things of God to, to become a pastor in a church. Yeah. And like all of it for all of the power dynamics that come with it, right? The ability to speak into people's lives and feel powerful, which I don't ever feel powerful, right? It's like we're begging people to, <laughs> to, to listen to us. <laughs> yeah. It's not like I'm a pastor, therefore they're going to yeah. listen. It's like yeah. I'm a pastor, therefore they're really going to doubt me more than normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, uh, you know, a good paradigm, we talked about this in group last night. Do you always go to the scriptures and go, oh, this is useful for me? That's a really scary place to be in. Yeah. What's better to say, oh, this is beautiful. Like I have been captured mm-hmm. by the love of the Father. This is an invitation to just him, right? It's that Luke 10. Uh, don't rejoice that, you know, you cast out demons. Rejoice mm-hmm. that your name is written in the book of life. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard too because you think like, I was talking to somebody um, who I want to get you to interview. So maybe I won't say this. I'll say it in case he just says no. But he was talking about how one of the most helpful tips he learned when reading scripture lately has been growing up. Well, since he's been a Christian, he always read looking for something to either learn or do. Mm. So he's always like, okay, what do I need to know from this or what do I need to do? Which are great questions. But he's now in a place and he said his scripture reading is so fruitful now because he's not coming with any expectation other than I'm just going to meet God here. And so when he opens up the Sermon on the Mound, I think he's coming. Did I say Mound again? You said it twice already. I didn't call you out. The I'm first never going to say Mound. <laughs> so let's just let's just agree it's Mound. Set the expectation. Okay. Um, you know he's reading. The Passion Translation calls it Mound. So you're good. All right. <laughs> He's reading Romans and he, uh, you know, the only thing he's bringing are just open hands with like, you know, I'm meeting with God. And if God wants to show me something to learn or to do, then I'll do it um, or wrestle with it at least. But I'm not my scripture reading time is just as valuable, even if I walk away with none of that. And that's a, I, such a Useful, helpful yeah. yeah paradigm shift of like, you know, do you use the text or are you formed by it? That's just a simple way of being formed by it. Um so yeah, no, that's I think that's really good. I think it's really helpful. Yeah, I think first and foremost we're we're called to taste and see mm. that the Lord is good. And it's it goes back to I don't remember we talked about this. I don't know if one of us had used this in one of our sermons on the Moses series, but like the Israelites were saved by God before they were given the law. Yeah, we talked and about that. That's a huge I think that's true of just everything. Like God always initiates that. And so in our obedience, this is an outpouring. It's our response to like us accepting the invitation of salvation. And seeing our part to play in that, not in earning it, but like, like it's almost like our our initial trust in God is like, I don't I don't know if it's this might be bad exegesis to use this as a paradigm, but you know the the woman caught in adultery like meets Jesus first and then he tells her go and sin no more. Right. It's not like um, he's like we'll come back after you've shown me a week of faithfulness and then I'll say. 
that these, you know, you're, you're forgiven or whatever. It's always the forgiveness that comes first and then the obedience that comes from that. And I Jesus think. knows that she'll sin again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, and then that's another thing too. It's like, what does that mean? Go and sin no more. When we say obey the word, even as we're talking about motivation and all of that, like there are going to be times I still approach the scriptures like a Pharisee or like a religious person. Like if I'm praying for something, if I'm fasting, that's a really hard thing. So I've been practicing, fa- I've been getting back in the routine of weekly fasting. And, um, some days I'm fasting for a certain thing. And when that, when I'm fasting for that thing, it's like that balance of like, I'm doing something that I know is not commanded, but, um, expected of me by Jesus. Jesus is when you fast, but I'm also doing it for something specifically. Like I want something out of this. And so how do you get to that place of like, okay, I'm obeying because I'm, I I know that I should do it and and I love God. So I want to do it, but I also want to get something out of it. Um, yeah, like I've been thinking, wrestling a lot with that idea. It's in the Sermon on the Mount too, where Jesus is like, great is your reward in heaven. Like there are rewards. Like he uses yeah. that as a motivation. Exactly. Like use your life, do these good things. But we go, oh no, you know, it's has nothing to do with you. Right. Yeah, to get in. And it's not about, it's so it, it's yeah. so hard for our culture to wrap our minds around this. Yeah, yeah. But there is something where Jesus is saying, hey, your obedience is going to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's in this life. And certainly it's in the life to come. Mm-hmm. And so balancing that with that, it, it you know, it, it should be a wonderful motivation. Uh, fasting, it's like, yeah, Lord, I want to hear from you. There, mm-hmm. There's, I'm confused about this. And I think the, our leadership team's uh, phrase this year, I think is a helpful way to look at it is dazzled or disappointed, you know? So like, I think we're fasting right if, uh, you know, we're waiting to be dazzled. And we don't hear it, we're disappointed, but God still uses that disappointment. Like, okay, God, you're still in control. So clearly there's a reason you didn't reveal it to me. So I'm going to accept that too. But I did have the heart motivation to say, God, I want, you know, to hear X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. and, and honor the Lord when he doesn't give it to us. But I think we honor him when we're like, yeah, this is what I'm asking for. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such, it's such, that's such a hard balance. And I almost think that's the starting point too. Like in a lot of ways, I, I think it's good that we ended with obedience, but this is sort of like obedience is really the first step like in your, and I, I don't know if you had mentioned this or maybe, well, that's why we started with authority. It's another way to say obedience. Yeah, sure. But like in, in people's spiritual maturity, people who feel stagnant in their faith or people who feel like they haven't heard from God in a while, or like they've been following Jesus their whole life and nothing has changed or, you know, whatever. Usually I think obedience is the first step in a lifelong process of discipleship and transformation that like that's in a lot of ways, it's sort of circular. So like after obedience, you go right back to authority and tasting it. Like obedience is how you taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm-hmm. You have to participate in it and you have to. You f- haven't really hugged until you've yeah, exactly. gone and, and done it. The end of meditation is action yeah. um, or formation or whatever. Like it's, it's not just even in our paradigm of, you know, the vision for our church formed by Jesus together for others. There's always like an outward element of it. And so it kind of always. You haven't really back. been formed by him until you've done it together for others too. Yeah. And then you doing it is how you're, again, formed by him together. So it kind of goes over and over again. So for a lot of this, it's like obeying the word, which is such a broad thing, too. Like, what is that? Somebody's like, okay, what do I do now? I want to obey it. Where do I start? What do I do? Um, In some ways, it's the practices. But like you unlock the scriptures when you walk the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, But yeah, we talked about that last night. Where do I start? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, there's so much to obey. And so I think it's, first of all, Holy Spirit. Yeah. He'll guide you into what the next thing is. He'll convict you. Mm-hmm. 
But then it's community, so we can speak into each other's life and go, you know, I think this is your next step of obedience. We need to make that more common, yeah, right? Like speaking into people, uh, and and I think it's just like, yeah, it's it's uh, trusting in our pastoral leadership as we give applications every week. This is a great first start, you know. Mm. There's so much I need to do, but he's telling me this week I should read my Bible, so I'm going to start there and see what happens next, right? Like, yeah. what if we all together as a community are really taking those next steps? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, all that to say obedience is the first step. So, you know, if you're stuck in your faith, you feel stagnant. Um, it's one of the scariest things to pray, but I think it's one of the the best things and most rewarding things of like, God, show me where I need to obey. What do I need to submit to? What am I not living out? Um, you know, do I need to reconcile? Do I need to ask for forgiveness? Do I need to go forgive somebody? Do I need to, uh, start fasting? Do I need to practice Sabbath? You know, whatever it is, I think that's, that's the invitation is that, um, you will, yeah, like you said, you unlock the power of the scriptures, you unlock, uh, the, the sanctification, the transformative power of God's word that, um, that you're, that you're looking after through obedience. So where do you want to take this conversation next? Oh, I thought I just did. I thought I, <laughs> Oh, that I felt like I volleyed that. No, All right. <laughs> we're, well, we we're trying to give you two. Well, let's talk about the information to action ratio. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I am in the middle of reading Neil Postman's book right now, Amusing yeah. Ourselves to Death, which is fascinating. Just the introduction alone to uh -huh. that book is just gold because yeah. he compares and contrasts Brave New World with 1984, right? right? So one of them is about inflicting pain mm -hmm. to make the people do what the powers want, but the other one is to inflict pleasure, mm -hmm. right? One is to like hide, like one government or whatever, hide stuff from the people 1984 yeah 1984 but then brave new world is like no they're so distracted the stuff's out there in the open that they don't even care to research and look right and he argues we're entering into a brave new world more than 1984 yeah you know and so then and he didn't even know about social media right this was written in 1985 so mm -hmm. it was the year after 84 which is just i think it's just so cool like um, 1984 wasn't written in 1984. It was correct. The time that that's what he was expecting. But he kind of used it as like, all right, how did that last year go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like where are we at comparatively? Which is really cool. Uh, but he talks about one of the biggest things that really is ruining us as a people, deforming us, maybe the language we would use, is that information to action ratio. So he talks about the telegraph actually being the the, the moment. Uh, that that we've really kind of uh, were deformed because you can hear news about something happening on the other side of the world. And literally, because it's on the other side of the world, there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. But yet, I think our modern way of doing it today is we read the news all day and we stress, and we think the fact that we're stressing or we tweet about it, we did something. Oh, yeah. And the reality is, is we didn't, mm -hmm. right? And in, in many ways, you couldn't do anything about it, mm -hmm. right? And so then you begin slowly, like for us, it's been our whole life. We always hear about stuff that doesn't require anything from us. Mm -hmm. And that's not very common for human history, right? Like we had talked about if Joe's horse got out, okay, we're all putting our boots on and we're going to help Joe, who was our neighbor, get his horse back into the stall, mm -hmm. right? And so we would know, oh, I need to, whenever I hear something, I need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's like this week, our, our main application was reconciliation, right? We said like, how do we obey? For example, in Sermon on the Mount is reconciliation. Drop your gift at the altar, go and make it right. And what was incredible is a couple from our church called us up 
and we didn't know. And he, they brought some things and we reconciled. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I was overjoyed. And I told a pastor about it yesterday. And he was like, Trey, that's unheard of. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how sad is that? That that's not common. Mm -hmm. It's not common to have a whole sermon. It's actually at the end, but a sermon about reconciliation. A path, I never assumed anybody would actually try to reconcile, yeah. at, at least with me. I was like, what? You know, yeah. um, we're so used to not applying. Yeah. And so I had given the point, like, even if someone would come up, which nobody's ever said this to me, but if they would say this to me, they would say like, hey, Trey, that sermon really moved me. Mm -hmm. I know that doesn't mean they got up and moved and did something. Mm -hmm. I know it just meant they felt good about it or they were inspired but I have no assumption that they're going to actually move and do the thing we talked about. Yeah. Right. Do you, I don't know where you want to take that, but we definitely have an information to action ratio that is like way wonky. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why we're really trying to do these form series because it we, we're trying to constantly tie it back to an action. Yeah. Yeah. It's and at the end of the day, we all know that that's a problem because we all know the right thing to do. Like all of us know if you're if you have any level of self-awareness, you know the person that you want to be. And you probably even know what you need to do to get there. Um, but you're you are so unaccustomed to like just uh, putting your lifestyle in alignment with that, that like there's such a disconnect between what we know we should do, what we know to be true and what we know is right from like how we actually live. And so, yeah, in a lot of ways, this last this this last week of our scripture series is kind of a an encapsulation of our entire philosophy of a church is like we don't want to just be a church that informs you because I don't believe it's just by, you know, your your mind that you're transformed. I think it's everything. It's um, even in that line, you know, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, that comes after Paul talks about submitting yourself uh, your body is as a living sacrifice to God. So it's not just your mind and it's not just your bodies, but it's all of that integrated. You you are transformed by the renewing of your mind so that with your body, your lifestyle, your habits, your practices, you are able to live out what you know to be true through the transforming renewal of your mind. And so like formation is is really about that. It's about um, and you know, we, and information's easy, right? Like it's easier to like go down a, a rabbit hole of a Twitter thread about social injustice in the world. It's much harder to go and reconcile with people that have hurt you. Um, yeah, it was so easy to preach about reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrifying to get a text. Hey, can we meet tonight? <laughs> we want to reconcile, you know? Uh, no, actually we can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. no, I'm busy. No, yeah. you know, totally. So yeah, I think, I, yeah, it's, it's. And, and then it's interesting too, like Paul is writing, you know, when he writes his New Testament letters, uh, encouraging the church on how to live, um, there's no talk of like, hey, watch out for the government or watch out for like the cultural climate that you're in. Like, it's always like the, the transformative power that we have as Christians, I think, starts with ourselves. And I think too often we want to like do things. If we do want to do something, it's always aimed at others or it's aimed out there. But I think the framework of obedience to the word starts with your own heart. And that's sort of where I think you ended the sermon was talking about like, this is how like you, you, you take the first step in doing that. Yeah. So like obedience is always focused on yourself first. And then, you know, you have a community of people that learn to love and forgive each other on like a real level, like, like what happened, you know, earlier this week, like that'll, that'll change the world. You have little communities that learn how to do that and then actually live that out. 
that is so unheard of. And that's what made the early church so like, um, attractive to people is they were genuinely loving, serving and, and communing and fellowshipping with one another in a way that was so unheard of because of their commitment to actually obeying the scriptures, not just being informed by it, but, but they would say, okay, you know, Paul's letters would start with theology and then he would end with like practical, like, okay, love, you know, one another, share each other's burdens, that kind of thing. And so then they would do it. And the, the, the effect that had on the Greco-Roman world was, was crazy. That's why people hated them. That's why people flocked to them. Um, uh, women and, and, and children and the outcasts, the marginalized slaves would come to the Christian churches because they knew these are people who actually lived what they believed. They, they obeyed the word of God. And through that, the church spread. It wasn't by critiquing the government or the culture, focusing all their attention outward. It was by letting themselves, first on an individual level, be transformed, communing with other people in their community. You have a community of people that learn how to do that together. And then the church exploded through the power of the spirit and all of that. But I just think it's really important that that's, that's where it starts. And that's where the focus has to be in our obedience. Yeah. And that really steps into a lot of what we'll look at in the book of Revelation. Um, just that whole idea you're talking about. And we actually talked about this in the Daniel series too. But I think a lot of Christians today, we do a good job um, decrying the sins of Babylon, mm. but we still are very guilty of applying the strategies of Babylon, right? And so the way of Jesus not only uh, steps away from that sin, but it steps away from that strategy of manipulation, power moves, right? Um, shaming others, uh, pulling people down to pull mm. yourself up. Uh, no, we serve, we love, we honor, we humble ourselves. It's totally a different strategy. It's upside down kingdom stuff. And that's why obedience that's word obedience. is so hard. Yeah. Like that's why it's so hard. Yeah. Because we think, yeah, someone told me that the other day. They're like, man, you know, it's really hard to grow a church if you actually like act like Jesus, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, cause sometimes like I, I've had people, you know, with, with larger churches they are like, you just have to get mean. And it's like, well. Like I get like speaking truth. And so there's an element to that, but also like, no, I think you have to take the way of, of servanthood mm -hmm. and, and love and praying, you know, like some, you can't use the strategies that the world uses, mm -hmm. but we tend to, we want to, because we'll get that result faster. We trust in that strategy more than the strategy of the way of Jesus. And so I think that's a lot of why obedience as we wrap up, yeah. why obedience is so hard is because we don't trust it's going to give us our intended result. Yeah. Right. Like why? Okay, great. But that's actually going to make my life harder, not mm -hmm. easier. But if we trust the words of Jesus in Matthew seven, he's saying, no, like, yeah, life's going to get harder, but you're going to withstand it. You're going to, you're still have, you, you know, you're still gonna be a man of character at the end of the day. You're mm -hmm. still going to be able to love your enemies, even when they persecute you, you're still going to be able to, um, love and sacrifice for your family, right? There's, it's a beautiful thing that, that he creates our character through these subversive kingdom ways of living mm -hmm. that seem so counterintuitive. It seems like if I do these things, my life, people will take advantage of me, right? I'm going to be the loser of the argument, not the winner. Mm -hmm. um, but we hold fast because Revelation says, you know, in the end, like this is just halftime right now, right? Yeah. We do win. Uh, and, and that victory comes... Uh, not by demeaning others or any of those things. It's it's by serving them. And Jesus says you will get taken advantage of. Like if somebody asks for your cloak, give them your tunic as well. Like that's going to happen. It's like you just 
the expectation that we're going to, that obedience shouldn't lead you to suffering is like so far removed from reality and from the teachings of Jesus that, um, I think that's another reason that we don't, we don't engage with that is because we, we know that I think deep down, we know that like you open yourself up to forgiveness and people might slap you in the cheek and then you're going to have to obey again by turning the other cheek. And that's just this spiral of like, but what you really get out of it is people are going to slap you in the face no matter what. They're going to slap you harder if you slap them back. Um, Mm -hmm. So being formed in the way of Jesus is uh, turning the other cheek and allowing yourself to be a person who's resilient in the face of that um, with a true hope in in who God has called you to be. That's good. Like we, we had someone last night say, yeah, I obey because I believe it's the good life. I'm like, yes. And, but then they said, and I pushed back a little with grace. Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't obey because I have to, I I obey because I get to. And I get that, and I love that heart. But also, sometimes you obey because you have to. It's duty you know, like, and devotion. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Wish you were there last night. <laughs> you know, it's often delight, but sometimes it's duty, right. right? And you just do it because the Lord is my Lord. Yeah. You know, and so if I only do the things that sound delightful to me, who's really in charge here, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, that's no marriage. We, that's we, no way to live in a relationship. Bringing it back to marriage. Sorry. I like it. No, yeah, I, I, because I really do want our people to realize this is the good life, right? Mm-hmm. This obedience actually often leads to abundance, and mm-hmm. it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't, at least not on this side of life, you know, mm-hmm. on this side of Earth. So, uh, that is a helpful way, thing to remember to wrap it up. Sometimes we obey because He is God and we are not, mm-hmm. and we trust Him with the results. But the delight is in the obedience itself, not in whatever comes after that obedience. Yeah. To me, the delight is to one day hear, well done, my good and faithful servant.